couple of folks from college and career at this coffee shop downtown, and we ended up having a conversation around some of the books that we were reading. Uh, specifically a conversation around some old dead theologians because those were the books that we were reading. And so we were talking about uh, a specific body of writing sometimes called the Church Fathers. Now you've probably never heard of that before. That's not something that people just casually talk about. Uh, But think about it in this way. The disciples Jesus called to himself. He taught them sort of what it meant to follow him and then he sends them out into the world. Well, The disciples weren't like mute. They, they talked to people. They had friends, and they also had disciples. They had people that they taught what Jesus had taught them. Uh, and these are sort of the people who've come to be known as the church fathers, these early Christian leaders who were the disciples of the disciples. And there's a handful of, of books that they wrote, and we were just kind of having a conversation around this. Uh, and while we were talking, uh, this girl walked in from across the shop and came up to me and said, hey, I'm not, I'm not trying to interrupt you or anything, but I was wondering if you could explain the tattoo on your leg because I've been staring at it and I can't figure out what it means. I thought, well, that's super weird that she's just been staring at me from afar. But yeah, that sounds fine. Uh, And so I just explained to her, the the tattoo on the side of my leg is an early Christian symbol that was used to explain the Trinity. It's sort of a helpful way of, of helping somebody understand this really complicated idea that we think there's one God in three persons. And I totally disappointed my parents when I did it, uh, even though it was a Jesus-centered tattoo, but that's kind of the idea behind it. And she said, okay, cool. Um, Is that Catholic? And I said, I mean, I don't know any Catholics that would disagree with it, so I guess in that sense it's Catholic. And she said, are you Catholic? Are any of you Catholic? And she sort of points at all of us. And our response was, no, we are not Catholic, we're Protestant. And, and at this point, she, she seemed a little bit sad when I said that. And she said, well, I'm a part of this Catholic church downtown, and there's not a lot of like, people uh, our age there, and I'm just trying to find folks who might be interested in getting involved there. And we ended up having this really good conversation about some of the things that we're in agreement on as Catholics and Protestants. But, but this conversation was also a reminder of something that we can sometimes tend to forget, uh, which is that the Christian church is divided as it currently exists. Uh, you may or may not know this, but in Christianity, there's really three big branches. There's the Roman Catholics, there's the Protestants, and then there's another branch called the Eastern Orthodox. And there's a huge amount of overlap there. There's a whole lot we agree on, things like the Trinity, things like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, all the stuff that we sang in, in that song, This I Believe. Those are the sort of things that all the branches of Christianity agree on. But there's also a lot that we don't agree on. Uh, there's also a lot that, that causes us to be divided as we are. And what we want to do over the next couple weeks is, is to begin to have a conversation over the things that make us different as Protestants, the things that are sort of our distinctives, the things that we're committed to as Protestant Christians that shape us and shape the way that we encounter Scripture and the gospel and and the way that we live the Christian life. Uh, Historically, when Protestants broke off from the Catholic Church, uh, they said there's five points, and this is 10, there's five points Uh, of disagreement that we have. There's these five commitments that are central to what we're doing that that we think is not just biblical, but it's historical. This is what Christians have always believed, but it doesn't seem like the Catholic Church is interested in following these anymore. And so until that changes, we have to take a step back. And these five sort of commitments came to be known as the five solas. 
You may have noticed that we put them up on our back wall long before we explained to you what any of them meant. So maybe you've been uh, coming in and out of this room for the last couple months thinking, look at that wonderful art that I don't understand at all. Maybe your eye's been drawn to the lamb that's cut in half and you're super freaked out by that. Maybe you're the sort of person that thinks, well, that looks nice and it's functional and it fills the blank space, but I have no idea what that means. Or maybe you're the huge theology nerd who's like, yes, our stake in the ground against the, the papists. I, I, I don't know where you fall on this sort of scheme of people. But we want to spend some time talking about these five sort of central truths that shape the Christian life. Uh, and, and why we feel like, not just me, but Shane and Brian and the leadership in our church, why we feel like this is something that is important enough that we can put it on our back wall uh, and be committed to it. But I, I would venture to say that in sort of explaining what we're going to spend some time talking about really over the rest of the summer, there is a, a little bit of ground clearing that I need to do. There's a little bit of questions, maybe some anxiety here among us that I need to sort of put to rest. So, so I would imagine that in this room, you hear that we're going to spend the next uh, couple months talking about why it is that we're not Roman Catholic, what some of our distinctives are. And th- there's two categories of people. There's those of you in here who have Roman Catholic friends, family members, uh, people that you know and you love, and it is obvious that they love Jesus. It's obvious to you that they're Christians, and you are tired of hearing especially Southern Baptists talk bad about Roman Catholics. And then there's, there's probably some of us in this room who know why we're not Catholics, have some really deep-seated opinions about that, and you are the people that that first group of people was tired of hearing. You are the angry Southern Baptist foaming at the mouth about the evils of Rome. Now, let me speak to, to two of these sort of categories real quick, two of these people, where, wherever you fall on the spectrum. First, if you're in that first category, you, you've got Catholic friends, Catholic siblings, uh, Catholic family members. You, you love them. You care for them. Uh, it's obvious to you that they love Jesus. Hear me when I say I have no interest in ranting and raving for the next two months about all the evils of Rome. I'm embarrassed by people who do that. Like, like when our, our friend came to us in the coffee shop and asked me about my tattoo and asked if we were Catholic, I was sort of cringing when I said I'm Protestant because I assumed that she would think that I was about to go lecture her and talk about all the evils of what's happening in Rome. I've got no interest in doing that over the next few weeks. Um, I I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's productive. If you're in the second category, and you uh, sort of have this entrenched and maybe sort of angry posture towards Rome, um, let me challenge you over these next few weeks to read John 17 daily and pray along with Jesus for the unity of the church. Because it would be really easy to talk about why we're different and to never think about the fact that Jesus doesn't want us to be separate. Jesus wants the church to be united. So so I want to invite you to do that alongside me as I pray these things. But but let let me just finally say this in light of all of those different categories into which we might fall. It helps nobody to pretend like there aren't differences. Um, I don't know if you've maybe been in a relationship before and you've done something to make your significant other really mad uh, and you can tell that they're really mad at you or maybe you're like, I've never been in a relationship before. This illustration is lost on me. But you can tell that they're mad. You say, hey, what's wrong? Nothing. Seriously, is everything okay? I'm fine. 
That is the most useless string of words that can come out of somebody's mouth when they're angry because it's obvious that there is something wrong. It's obvious that you're not fine and you're not helping either of us by pretending like everything's okay. Or, or, or maybe you're, uh, you've seen this sort of play out in a family feud before. Uh, there's an aunt or an uncle who has had conflict with your mom or dad and Uncle Tommy doesn't come around for Thanksgiving anymore and you can ask mom and dad, why isn't Uncle Tommy here for Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter? And they say, oh, he's just busy. He's not just busy. There's conflict there that needs to be solved. Pretending like it's not there doesn't help anyone. And so while we don't want to be angry and, and, and aggressive, we do want to recognize that we've got some differences and we just want to be upfront about this. There's probably another concern that some of you have and I want to speak to that as well. You've probably, or at least some of you have probably heard of these five solas in the context of encountering a really angry, grumpy Calvinist because they tend to like to rant and rave about the five solas. And so you hear that we're going to talk about this and you think this is some sort of like a secret Calvinist plot to convert all of us. Like this is it. He, this is the overthrow where everybody becomes a Calvinist and they just get the five points tattooed on their forehead. And it's, <laughs> let, me, let me also put you at ease here. The worst thing that could happen to college and career and to our church is if everybody became a Calvinist. That would straight up be the most boring church in the whole world. And I don't think that anybody, I don't think that uniformity will be achieved in doctrine until the day that we see Jesus. And then we'll see if everybody does or doesn't become a Calvinist at that point. <laughs> but it won't happen here, and I have no interest in seeing it happen here. These, these five points, these five solas that we're going to walk through, these are things that Christians across the map agree on. Uh, these are not just things that one side of one sort of theological persuasion agrees on. These are things that Christians across the board are committed to. So wherever you land on all these secondary issues, know that, that this is something we can unite around, even if we disagree around a whole host of other things. And then finally, uh, I'm sure that there's some of us in here who hear that we're going to spend uh, all this time talking about these concepts produced by old, long since dead people. And you think, oh my gosh, kill me now. That sounds like the most boring summer of my whole life. And it just sounds like we're sort of talking about these high-level concepts and ideas just for the sake of talking about them. This is the sort of like, let's just sit and talk about words, about words, about words. It just sounds miserable to you. And it sounds impractical to you. Like, what am I going to do with all this other than be able to impress my friends at Starbucks? And your friends may not even be impressed by any of this at Starbucks. Hear, hear me when I say that, that I feel that concern much more acutely now than I did when I first started this job. I, I, I feel that concern of just spending a lot of time talking about theology and it never actually doing anything to us. That concern about us talking a lot about God but never living any differently in God's world. And I want you to know that I think that these five solas that we're going to walk through, they're not simply ideas to be understood but they're truths to live by. They're not just the sort of thing that you sort of get into your head and then you can regurgitate as an argument. They're the sort of things that shape us and how we live, how we relate with one another here at the church, how, how we relate with the people in our college classrooms in, in whatever labs we might find ourselves in, how we relate to people that we work with. I don't think that these ideas are impractical, high-level concepts to just sit and pontificate about but they're things that can shape us and how we love God and how we pursue him. I started traveling 
outside of the state on a consistent basis around 18 or 19, just because music was giving me some of those opportunities. And I had been outside of the state of Florida a lot before. My, my family did all these vacations when I was younger in middle school, uh, in elementary school, and early on in high school. But, but the difference was during all of these vacations, I had a Game Boy Color and Pokemon Red, and I spent all of my time not looking at where I was, but looking at the screen in front of me. So no different than now. The, the only difference is that the Game Boy Color screen wasn't backlit, so you couldn't play in the dark. So... For me, even though I'd been out of the state before, my first real experience of paying attention to the world around me felt like it kind of came around 18 or 19. And I, I experienced uh, what I call elsewhere syndrome, which is that every time I would go to a new city or, or a new state, I would think about how much better this place is than where I currently am. There, there was this sense of like everywhere I go is better than where I was. I think in sort of our day and age, it's called fear of missing out, something like that. There's an acronym for it. There's a hashtag that goes along with it. But I, I would go to two, the mountains of North Carolina and say, this is so much better than the boring flat state that I live in. Uh, and then I would go to New York and I would say, this is so much better than the slum of Tampa, which Tampa is indeed a slum, but that's what's beautiful about it. <laughs> I would go to uh, Nashville and sort of see like all the culture and be like, oh my gosh, this is, this is so much cooler than where, and, and I, I always had the sense that everywhere else that I went was better than where I was. And, and I think that we can kind of develop that in the church too. Yeah, the church down the road is better than the church that I'm at. The denomination across the street is better than the one that I'm in. We can see the good in everything else but where we are. Here's what began to change that for me in traveling. I actually started paying attention to where I was as much as I paid attention to where I went. And so I started looking at, at the things that were going on in Tampa that were cool and, and just as cool as the things I was seeing in other cities. I started paying attention to the shops and businesses and the things that were being opened up. I started paying attention to the music scene and the art scene and all this stuff that I thought was so cool elsewhere. I started to realize a lot of it's here. I just haven't been looking at it. And here's what I hope these next few weeks are. It's an opportunity for us to pay attention to where we are as Protestants, to look at some of these central truths that are here. It's a part of our identity and say, hey, this is actually a lot more beautiful than I thought it was. And so that's what we'll be doing as we walk through these solas. But tonight we begin with sola scriptura. This literally translates to by scripture alone. So what does this phrase mean? If we say that we believe in sola scriptura, what is it that we're actually saying? Well, this is sort of the official definition of it. When we say that we believe in sola scriptura, what we mean is that only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. And this is sort of set over and against what the Roman Catholic Church officially says, which is that scripture and tradition have equal authority. There are two streams of inspired teaching that should be revered as equally valuable. So we say that as Protestants, we believe in sola scriptura. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, here's where we come to our text for the evening. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 14 through to 17. Just some background as we kind of dive into this together, uh, because it's important to know what's going on in the letter that you're reading. 
So this is probably the last thing that Paul ever wrote. This is sort of his deathbed, a series of commandments and suggestions for the church. We don't know where Paul is at this point in his life, but he's probably in prison. And by the end of the letter, you can tell that he knows he's going to die, not of old age, but because he's going to be executed. And so in Paul's mind, he's beginning to sort of get his affairs in order, like we do when we know that we're going to die. But, but Paul is not just interested in making sure that all of his possessions get left to his favorite son or daughter. Uh, Paul is concerned with the church going forward. But Paul's concerned with making sure that the church is ready to face what's coming for it. And so he begins to write these letters to young Christian leaders. Now, one of them is this man named Timothy. Timothy is a young Christian leader, I guess, theoretically, but he's actually probably older than all of us, at least most of us. He's between 30 and 40. So he's not like a college student. Uh, He's not even working on his master's degree. He's middle-aged or he's working towards middle age by our standards, but by ancient standards, he's still considered a young man. And, And Timothy is really kind of the first gen or the second generation of Christians. Everybody that Paul met had become a Christian because they heard what Paul said. Timothy is raised in a Christian home. Timothy's raised in the church, and he's this young, nervous pastor trying to figure out what he's going to do when his mentor dies. And so Paul writes this letter saying, hey, here's the things you need to expect. Here's how you train up elders. Here's how you deal with conflict. Here's how you deal with all of the sort of things that might arise that I won't be around to guide you in. And as he's done all of this, he's kind of bringing the letter to a close. We get to our text for the evening. Paul says this in verse 14, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So Paul sort of begins the end of this letter by telling Timothy that he needs to remember and hold fast to what it is that he's been taught specifically what he's been taught through what he calls the sacred writings, which is another way of referring to scripture. I think we should start using that. It sounds very mystical and sort of like wizards and elves, and I'm very pro wizards and elves. So he says, what you've learned in the sacred writings, you need to be committed to this. And then he says, remember from whom you've learned all this. Now, the English language, whom can be a singular term or a plural term. So you maybe write like a letter. You say, to whom it may concern. That could be a letter to one person. That could be a letter to 50,000 people. That could be a letter to an entire organization. In the Greek, there's two words. There's the singular whom, and then there's the plural whom. And Paul actually uses the plural here. So, So here's what he says. You need to continue in what you've been taught and what you've learned of scripture, remembering all of the people who taught this to you remembering all of the people who trained you up in this. Here's here's why this is important, because what Paul is trying to point Timothy to is not some private encounter with the Bible. What he's trying to point Timothy to is a corporate encounter. What Paul doesn't say to him is, remember that time you were sitting under a tree listening to Hillsong, reading the book of Genesis, and God spoke to you. If you've done that, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make fun of you, but I am making fun of you. 
That was a joke. Please, I'm not mean. I am mean. I'm not that mean. This is not going well. Um, so he says, he says this. He says, I want to point you to this corporate encounter that you've had with scripture, that, that you have encountered and been trained and taught up in the scriptures by this group of people. Remember that. Hold fast to it. And here's why this is important. Sometimes when people say things like, I believe in sola scriptura, what, what we think that we're saying is, it's me and it's my Bible and it's the Holy Spirit under a tree and whatever I come up with is what God said. And that's not at all what that phrase means and it's not at all what Paul's telling Timothy to do. And we've sort of built this monster uh, by encouraging good things in the church. So, so we say things like, make sure that you have a personal quiet time. Uh, make sure that you spend time in the word every morning. And these are good things. Like, it is good to spend time reading the Bible and reading it on your own, uh, listening to it, hearing it in, in the form of podcasts or whether you listen to sort of the audiobook on the YouVersion Bible app. This is all really, really important. But we say things like the Bible is God's love letter to you when, when in fact it's not just to you, it's to us. God, God doesn't just give the Bible to you. He, he gives it to each and every one of us. He gives it to the church and then he pours out his spirit on the church, the spirit that inspired scripture so that together we're encountering the word of God. And so just as much as, as we need to emphasize us reading the Bible on our own, we need to emphasize the importance of us reading the Bible together. There's a, a couple weeks ago, uh, Corey Larkin sent me a text message and he said, uh, you know, I've been thinking about the transfiguration a lot. I was just wondering if you could give me your take on it. Um, if you've never read the transfiguration, it's this really weird event in the middle of the gospels where Jesus takes some disciples up onto a mountain. All of a sudden he starts glowing. Moses and Elijah are there. Peter says something stupid, as is often the case. And then all of a sudden, everything goes back to normal. It's, it's bizarre. You should definitely read it because it just sort of strikes like lightning. And so Corey said, hey, man, what are your thoughts on this? And so I read a bunch of commentaries and then presented their thoughts as though they were my thoughts, so I would seem impressive. And I said, well, here's kind of what I've got. Uh, what are you thinking? And he sort of gave me some of his thoughts. And, and as we were talking back and forth, we said, we should, we should probably really just get together with some people and think about this. Because this seems like a really big deal, but I don't really know that we're getting to the depths of what's going on. So we called Matt Pike, and I made really terrible tacos. And on a Monday, we all came over, and we spent like two or three hours just talking through this passage. Why do you think that it says it happened on the sixth day here? Why do you think what Peter said was dumb? Because it seems kind of like a good suggestion, but Luke says it was a stupid idea. So what is so dumb about Peter's idea? And we just, we just went back and forth and, and said, you know, I think I understand what this is. What do you think this is? And together we worked through scripture. Why? Because the Bible is not just God's gift to you. It's God's gift to us. Together as the people of God, we work through it. It's given to the church. And we probably need to take a bigger view of church when we say that too. Because for many of us, when we think about the church, we think about everybody in this room and in Bay Life. And maybe some of us are a little bit more aware we think of the church in terms of uh, everybody in the Brandon area or maybe all the Christians in the world. But I wanna invite you to have a bigger view of church than even just that. Because the church of Jesus is not just all the Christians currently alive. It is every Christian who has ever lived. It is all of us spanning back to the resurrection of the son of God. 
And this is important because if we're supposed to read the Bible together, we don't need to privilege the people who just happen to be alive at any given moment. Uh, see, sit, sitting at that table with me and Corey and Matt as we read the words of God were people like Augustine, people like Teresa of Avalon, people like Susanna Wesley, and together we're wrestling through what God has said as we try to submit to his word. So, so Paul says to Timothy, remember what you've learned, knowing the people, the community from whom you've learned it, the people who've introduced you to and taught you the scriptures. And then he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. I don't have cable or Wi-Fi at my apartment. And, and so the way that I entertain myself is that at every paycheck, I take about a hundred bucks, I buy as many seasons of The Simpsons and The X-Files as I can afford, and then I spend the rest of the money on books. And so I was at this uh, bookstore called Mojo's that's near USF that sells used books. And I was walking past the literature section there and uh, walked past the completed works of William Shakespeare. And I said to myself, wouldn't I look smart with this on my bookshelf? If this is cheap enough, I will buy it and put it on my bookshelf so that I look smart. It was like two bucks, so apparently nobody cares about William Shakespeare anymore. But here is something interesting that historians tell us about William Shakespeare. He was obsessed with words, and he would labor for hours over picking the exact right word to use in his dialogue or in his writing. He would go back and forth about what is the perfect word that I can use to convey the exact idea that's on my mind. And sometimes he would say, there is no perfect word. And his response was to invent his own words. There's no word good enough for what I'm trying to say. Therefore, I'll have to take it upon myself to create a new one. And so he did. There's actually a whole lot of words in the English language that we use in, in sort of common speech that were just invented by William Shakespeare because he said, nothing else is good enough for me. So it's actually kind of really arrogant and pretentious. But he produced words because he said, nothing can do justice to what I'm trying to say. And the reason that I bring this up is because the word here in the Greek that Paul uses to describe scripture actually doesn't appear anywhere else before this letter in all of antiquity. Paul literally invents his own word to describe scripture. He takes the Greek word theos, which means God, and then the Greek word, which means, uh, the Greek word pneuma, which means breath or wind or spirit, and he smashes them together. And he says, all scripture is theonoustos. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's as if the phenomena of scripture, what the Bible is, is so unique. It is so powerful. It's so significant. That he says, there's no words that are good enough for this. We need a new one to describe what the Bible actually is, that it's breathed out by God. So what do we mean when we say this? that the Bible is God-breathed, that it's inspired. Because obviously God is not sitting on a mountain breathing on pieces of paper and just throwing down paper airplanes of scripture. So, so when we say that the Bible is God-breathed, what, what we want to affirm here, what we're trying to capture is this, that God throughout history for nearly a thousand years is inspiring people to write down eternal truths. But, but what's so incredible about scripture is that in the process of inspiration, God is not annihilating their personalities. He's not getting rid of their cultural situations. 
He's not removing their interests. Like Paul still sounds like Paul when he writes, even though he's being inspired. Um, Matthew still sounds like Matthew. Luke sounds like Luke. Mark sounds like Mark. But behind all of this is the governing wind of the spirit guiding them to write down the eternal truths of God. And this is sort of a, a high level concept. So maybe this, this analogy might be helpful. Uh, in one of my trips to uh, the record store to buy things to entertain me for the next month, uh, I, I stumbled across this record by a band called The Album Leaf. And I'd never heard of them before, but I said, that's a cool cover. I'm just gonna buy it. And we'll, if it's terrible, it's terrible entertainment. If it's great, it's great entertainment. But I'll be entertained nonetheless. And so I, I put this record on and I'm, I'm listening to it. I was like, I actually, I really like this. I think this is pretty good. And so I started looking into the band and I found out that the band is not actually a band. Uh, it's just this one guy who plays like 10,000 instruments. So he plays the violin, he plays the drums, he plays the guitar, he sings, not very well, but that's okay. He plays piano, he does all the beats behind the songs. He, it's, it's him behind all of the voices that you hear on this record. And, and when you think about it, the drums have sort of a different voice. They, they communicate different things than a guitar does. It, has, it occupies a different sonic space. It has different tone. It has a different sound. Uh, the same with bass. Bass is fundamentally different than the violin in terms of what it sounds like and what it communicates. And yet behind all of these is the same voice. And this is sort of what it's like with Scripture. Namely, that although there are an awful lot of authors, an awful lot of people coming from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of circumstances, all sorts of different interests and concerns, the spirit like wind over the reeds of an instrument brings all of their personality and perspective together into the symphony of God speaking. It is theopneustos. It is God breathed through the human pen. And then Paul begins to explain what that means. He says that scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction, for training in righteousness. But the teaching part of scripture should seem pretty obvious if you've been to church before, because that's kind of what's happening here every week. It's what's happening on a Sunday morning. It's what, ha what happens in your small group and in your Bible study that we come together and the Bible teaches us, that we learn from God through this text that he's given us. But to say that the Bible teaches sort of assumes something else, namely that the Bible's clear enough to teach us anything. And this is what's commonly called the, the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of the Bible. And here's what I wanna say. If you've read the Bible for more than two or three pages, uh, you realize there's some complicated stuff in there, especially if you start with Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, there's some real complexity in scripture. And so when we say that the Bible is clear, don't hear me as saying that every passage is easy to understand. I still have no idea what Paul means when he says that women will be saved through childbearing. I'm at a total loss. If you know, please tell me because I'm confused and the commentaries aren't helping. There are things in the Bible that are confusing and difficult to understand. It's a, it's a genuine challenge. But this is why it's so important to understand that we're not reading the Bible alone. Like, like if understanding the Bible was just up to you sitting under a tree, hoping you could figure out what this stuff meant, 
we would be in a bad way. But, but we're meant to read scripture together. And, and here's, here's the gift of the church. God's put people way smarter than me in the church that can help us understand some of the challenging portions of scripture. He gives us theologians. He gives us scholars. He gives us artists and poets and people who can take these things that we can't wrap our minds around and help us to begin to understand it. So when I say that the Bible's clear, I'm not saying that everything is equally clear. But on the most important things, there is remarkable clarity in scripture. It is abundantly clear on the most central things about what it means to follow Jesus, to be saved from sin, to live the Christian life. That's why Christians have been able to take things like that song that we just sang, This I Believe, and take the the primary principles of scripture and put it down in the form of creeds because on the most important things, the Bible is very clear. And there is enormous agreement across the history of Christianity on those things. But Paul goes on and he says that it's not simply useful for teaching, but also for reproof and for correction. You know, it's easy for us to say things like, yeah, I believe the Bible and and the Bible teaches me and it informs me. But more often than not, when we say that, generally what we mean is that we're willing to let the Bible sort of confirm the things that we already basically agree about. Like, Like when we say that the Bible's teaching us and we believe it has authority, we're okay with the Bible telling us not to cheat on tests, right? Because we already kind of know not to cheat on tests. We're okay with the Bible telling us not to lie because we already kind of know not to lie. It's really just sort of reinforcing what we already agree with. But here's the real test of whether you believe in the authority of the Bible. Does the Bible have the right to tell you that you're wrong? Does the Bible have the right not simply to be read by you, but to read you and find you wanting? Does the Bible have the right to look into our culture and say, you are wrong? And when it does that, will you listen to it? Because it's all well and fine to say that you believe in the authority of the Bible when it basically says the things that you already functionally agree with. But when it comes hard against the commitments that you have and says you're wrong and corrects you, rebukes you, that's where push comes to shove. That's where we really know what we believe about the Bible. Paul says it has the power not just to teach, but to correct And finally, he says this, that through scripture, the man of God will be competent and equipped for every good work. Now, understand this is not just for the men in the room. Timothy is a man, and so Paul is referring to him as such. But Paul's referencing here a Hebrew term, the messenger of God. Here's what Paul is saying, is that in scripture, this one thing in all of creation that is God-breathed, You have enough to live the Christian life, to to walk in holiness. In scripture, you have enough to be equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient. Now that's another easy thing for us to nod our heads and affirm. But, But I'll tell you that sometimes I struggle with this. Like I I think about the fact that I could probably pastor a college ministry with 2,000 people if I just started doing car giveaways or gave away iPods or things like that. Because in, in our mind, we say, yes, the Bible is enough, but we need other ways to grow the church. Yes, the Bible is enough, but we need other ways to entertain people. Yes, the Bible is enough, but we need a lot of other stuff to be able to pull this off. I'm not disparaging any of those things. 
I mean, cars are great. I would love it if you gave me a car. We should maybe do a car giveaway. But, but here's what Paul says is, all those things may be well and fine and, and helpful or unhelpful, but you need none of them. What you ultimately need to live the Christian life, what the church ultimately needs to thrive and to flourish is scripture. And if that is all we have, then we have what we need. This is what is meant when we say that we believe in sola scriptura, that the Bible teaches us, that it corrects us, and that in it we have enough to live the Christian life. So can I, can I just plead with you? Um, in the words of uh, St. Augustine, would you take up and read like, like it's enough for you to, it's, it's not enough for you to say, I believe the Bible, I believe in sola scriptura. If you never read this book, that's a useless thing to say. But if you believe this, that the scriptures are God breathed, that it's enough, that it can teach us and correct us, take up and read and don't just read by yourself, read together and hear God speak through his word. Let's pray and we'll continue. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you've spoken. God, I pray uh, that tonight might be the beginning of, of something new in this ministry, that we would begin to take your word more seriously, knowing that where it speaks, you speak. That we would long to hear your voice through the words that the Spirit has inspired. And God, we pray that as we sort of continue in our time together, that you would continue to move among us and stir our hearts and encourage us. We ask that you do this all in the name of Jesus. And we say, amen.